0: Wow, good morning. morning. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter (laughs) 2? And that's page uh, 1,343. 1,343 if you're using a Bible under the seat in front of you. What a beautiful day. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day where many are going to have the opportunity to come to Christ, including right now, right here. Father, I ask your blessing upon our time together. We thank you, Lord, for giving us this time. Thank you, Lord, that you are the redeemer. You are the rescuer. You give us hope, certain hope. We ask that you would speak to us in a wonderful way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been searching the Bible, looking for these two words, but God. And we're finding these wonderful moments in Scripture where God intervenes. And this morning we come to probably the most powerful example. It's found here in Ephesians chapter 2. And I'd like us to read through it together very carefully, beginning in verse 1. And you, Christian, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. There is so much in that passage. There are so many details. We could spend months on it. Have you ever been to the Cheesecake Factory restaurant? Have you ever seen their menus? <laughs> it takes forever to get through it. You're overwhelmed. And then when the food comes, it's a platter the size of this pulpit. That's sort of how I feel when I look at this passage. There's just so much to it. And really... We could spend months on it. But this morning, I just want to give you the top principles. I want to give you the most salient points. The first three verses give the picture of an unsaved person. It's a picture of you before you came to Christ. Verses 4 through 6 is a picture of a saved person. It's a picture of you in Christ as a born-again Christian. So you have side-by-side side a picture of an unsaved person and a saved person. It's sort of like a before and after shot. Those are very effective in marketing, aren't they? The diet programs, they show a before shot, usually a very unflattering picture. And then after the diet, this before-after shot that the person has been totally transformed. That's what we have here before us. A person before Christ and a person after Christ. So let's look at the before shot first. And this is a very ugly picture. In fact, many people get offended by it and reject it. But this is the Bible's picture Of a person apart from Christ. A person apart from Christ is dead. That's what it says a couple times in the passage there. Dead. That's the Greek word nekros. It's a word that means corpse. A person with no life whatsoever. So a person apart from Christ... Is a walking corpse. Somebody who is dead. Now, that's not speaking of something physically, it's speaking of a spiritual death. You're spiritually dead apart from Christ. Now, that's a pretty radical thing to say. Throughout human history, there's been basically two viewpoints of human nature one is that man is essentially good. We're all good. Then there's the viewpoint that man is sick. But there's hope for man. They can help themselves. Throw a little education or money at them. That's not the Bible's view. The Bible's view is not that man is good. Man is not sick either. Man is dead. No spiritual life. Whatsoever. And the idea here is that of separation. Death is what separates from the living. And so apart from Christ, you're separated from God. You're dead to him. You're dead to spiritual truth. Now, what causes the spiritual death? What's the source of it? A lot of times, uh, if you watch those CSI shows on TV, they're forensics. They're busy trying to figure out what's the cause of death so you can solve the case. What are the spiritual forensics on spiritual death? Why are we dead spiritually? Answer, sin. It says you are dead in trespass and sin. Sin kills us. Sin is the idea of, Falling short from God's standards, trespasses where you would deliberately cross a boundary that God has put in place. We've all done that. God is holy and perfect without sin. And so sin separates us from Him. What a picture. Apart from Jesus Christ, we're like walking zombies, spiritual corpses. And Paul tells us also that we walk helplessly and hopelessly under bondage to three very powerful forces. It says in verse 2, we walk according to the course of this world. Now, the world... In Greek, that word shows up, I don't know, like 186 times. And every time in the scripture, it's used to speak of the evil society. Apart from Christ, a person is absolutely dominated by the worldly system of thought, morals, and culture. And it makes you a wreck. It says also that we walk according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now walks in disobedience. That is a reference to Satan. Apart from Christ, you're spiritually dead and you're moved along, influenced by the world and by Satan. Under his influence. Now those are two very powerful external forces. The world And the devil. But there's even a more powerful force. And that's internal. You're dominated by your sinful nature. It says in verse 3. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. In the lusts of our flesh. Our sinful nature. A person apart from Christ. Is driven by flesh. That's what they live for. They're enslaved by it. You know, you can do a lot of danger just on your own. The devil doesn't make you do everything. I heard about a cute little girl. She was caught kicking her brother in the shins and pulling his hair. And Sally, her mother, said, why did you let the devil make you kick your little brother and pull his hair. And she answered, the devil made me kick him, but pulling his hair was my idea. (laughs) You are so capable of making the worst decisions in life, of doing the worst things to other people. Walking under the influence of your own flesh Of this worldly system. Of the satanic evil darkness. And then there's another detail that's added. In this before shot. They were by nature children of wrath. Apart from Christ you are a child of wrath. Your relationship with God. Is wrath. Now I know a lot of people don't like to. Think of the wrath of God. It's an uncomfortable topic. But don't think of God's wrath as God having temper tantrums. As God flying off the handle. As God losing it. God's wrath is his measured, equitable, just, righteous response to all sin. That springs forth from his perfection and holiness. God is holy. Sin must be judged and punished. And before you think that's too hard, all of us, we all, everyone's been created in the image of God. And everyone has this sense of justice. This idea that if you do something wrong, then something should be happen. And that's because God has that. You know, it's so frustrating to me. On August 3rd, 2019, Patrick Crucias enters Walmart, kills 23 people. And severely injures 22 others. He's on video doing it. There are pictures. He confesses to it. They find the weapons. And four and a half years later, things are still being decided in the courts. And in the deepest part of our heart, we cry out for justice. That's because God made you in his image. And when people do things wrong, there should be punishment. Now, God is perfect. And that's how he feels about all sin, including mine and yours. And so by nature, because of our sin, we're children of wrath. So that's the picture, the before shot. Dead. Helplessly under the dominion of the world, Satan, and your own flesh. And by nature, a child of wrath. It's not a popular topic. In fact, in many church pulpits to this day, they won't teach you this because they don't want to offend people. You need to be offended if you're going to respond to the truth. Let's get to the aftershot. It's prettier. Verse 4. But God who's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Those two words, but God, a simple conjunction in grammar. But the greatest conjunction in all of the universe theologically. Martin Lloyd-Jones said you could sum up the entire gospel with those two words, but God. Here's man, a walking zombie. Lost, helpless, but God. But God intervenes. But God butted in. But God moved to rescue. That's the idea. God comes to the rescue. When I was, uh, I'll never forget when I I was a teenager, I was in high school, and me and a buddy, we stopped at a gas station. And we got into some words with three other gang members. And these guys were much older. And we could see their knives. And it was gonna be a fight. And it was about to go down. And I remember I was terrified. Right at that moment when this was about to happen, this Jeep drives up to get gas. Sitting in the front seats, two of my good friends, six foot four. Defensive linemen, they got out and they said, uh, is there a problem here, Terry? And I looked at these three guys, is there a problem here, guys? <laughs> no, but I'll tell you, right at that last moment, the rescuer came. And that's what God has done. We're in a mess Now we've talked a lot about his wrath, his judgment, his perfection, his justice. But he's also a God of mercy. It says, but God who is rich in mercy. When you hear that word rich, what do you think about? Someone who's got so much money, they have more money than they know what to do with. That's God with mercy. Mercy. And God who loves you with his great love. It's all hyperbole and exaggerated in the Greek. He loves you with the greatest love. And he's moved to make it possible for us to be forgiven of our sins. He's moved to rescue us. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. To take our sins upon him. To bear all of our ugliness and die in our place. And Jesus has done that. Romans 5.8, another but God statement says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were a sinner. While I was a sinner. God demonstrated his love for me, the sinner. That Christ died for me. And the Bible says that when you place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, there's a great transformation. You're placed in Christ. And in Christ, the whole picture changes. If you are in Christ, then you are made alive spiritually. Verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with him in Christ Jesus. Now this is speaking about being born again. Jesus said, if you want eternal life, you must be born again. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things become new. Old things have passed away. And the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you give a new nature. You're born again. You wake up. Spiritually. He goes on to say, and he raises us up together with him. That's the word resurrection. Did you know when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, there's like a resurrection that took place in you? You were reanimated. You came to life. Remember that story in John chapter eleven, where Jesus calls the dead man out of the grave, and out walks the guy in grave clothes. And you look at that and you think, How in the world did that that happen to you? Spiritually, you're raised. Says in verse 6 that he makes us sit together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, as a Christian, you are seated in heaven with Jesus Christ right now. Now, that's not physically true. We're all seated in these little chairs here. But as a Christian, you are bilocational, you have two localities. Your physical address is here in El Paso, Texas, but your spiritual address is in heaven, seated at the throne of God, positioned in Jesus Christ. Wow. The Bible goes on to explain that not only are you completely born again, but the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside you. And dwells in you and animates you and makes you hungry for spiritual things and everything changes. I'm telling you, you give your life to Jesus Christ, these blinders come off, the light bulbs turn on. All of a sudden, you begin to see everything the way you should through faith in Christ. You become alive, and then you begin to walk a new heavenly course. As a born-again Christian, you don't have to walk according to the path of this world anymore. You don't have to walk according to the influence of the devil. And you don't have to walk according to the power of the sinful nature. You've been given freedom. And so you walk a whole new different way. I love verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in him. Christian, it says, we are his workmanship. The Greek word is poema. Also, it could be translated in English as like poem or masterpiece. You're one of God's masterpieces. A poem. Before you were dead. Running around, doing your thing, getting in all kinds of. God saves you, you. He changes you. He puts you on a whole new course in life. And you walk around as one of God's trophies, one of His poems, a masterpiece to the world. And people look at you and go, wow. It's so beautiful. No longer are you a child of wrath. Your child of grace. Verse 7 that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Christ, grace is God's favor and blessing that's not deserved. No longer are you related to God by wrath because you've received Christ who took the wrath for you. You become a child of God, and now you are a child of grace. You live your whole life under the favor of God. Now, the day of your death, and forevermore. Verse 7 says it will take him age after age after age after age after age to reveal his exceeding grace towards you. What a difference. Question Which picture is you? Is your picture in the first three verses? Or is your picture in verses four through six? And how can you know for sure that you've been transformed? Well, verse 8 and 9 is very important, and I'm even going to put it up here on screen. This shows you the mechanics of salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So that tells you everything about salvation. First of all, salvation is from God. Salvation comes only from the power of God. Man cannot save themselves. I can't save me. I can't save you. No other man can save you. God saves. God is the one who does the miracle. He's the one who provided his son through which the miracle could take place. The basis of salvation is grace. For by grace. It is by the grace of God that we even have the opportunity to be saved. By the grace of God that he sent his son. And the means of salvation is faith. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works. You can't be good enough. You can't work hard enough. You are saved through faith in Christ. So now, let's understand something. You have a responsibility in this. If you want to be saved, there's a responsibility. And you know what it is? To place your faith in Jesus Christ. To say, I trust him. You know, there are some people, and I don't, I don't even understand it. They, they think that the act of putting your faith in Jesus Christ is a good work. And they argue that you're being saved by good works if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? Putting your faith in Jesus Christ is not a good work. It's an admission that you can't get to heaven by any good work. Putting your faith in Jesus Christ is a cry for help. Help me. Save me. It's like a drowning man. You're drowning in sea. And a lifeline is handed down to you. The cry of faith is taking the lifeline. Salvation is a gift given to you. Your responsibility is to open the gift. Receive him. Take him into your heart. Put your faith and your trust in him. And when you do, when you do, this transformation takes place. Now there's something else about salvation that you need to know. It has to be deeply personal. It has to be your own. It has to be a moment where you, where you come to Christ. You can't get saved because your parents are saved. You can't get saved because you have a bunch of Christian friends. You get into the kingdom of God. One at a time. There's a gate that everyone must walk through. And you walk through by yourself. And that means you have to have this personal moment with God. Where you will admit. That you look like that picture in the first three verses, God I'm dead, God I'm a sinner. I need your mercy and forgiveness. you got to admit that you're that bad that you need and that's a pretty big step because usually we think of other people as being bad. you know what I mean? Oh, save that person, they're a wreck. no. Half the battle, more than half the battle, is getting to the point where you drop to your knees and you cry out, help me, I'm a dead man. So often we want to, you know, blame other people and find faults in other people. No, you gotta, you got to come before God and realize the depths at which you are in sin and death and misery. And then everyone, everyone needs to have that personal but God moment where God comes to rescue you hear the gospel, you hear the truth and you reach out to him and you grab him and you hold on and he will save you my friends that's the only way that a sinner can be saved. That's the only way that works. If you put a sinner in school. You're going to end up with an educated sinner. If you put a sinner in therapy. You're going to end up with a well adjusted sinner. If you put a sinner in a church somewhere. You'll end up with a religious sinner. But if you put a sinner in Christ. You'll end up with a saved sinner. A transformed sinner. Someone whose life will be turned into a masterpiece. A poem expressing God's grace to this world. How about it? Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? In these closing moments, I want to speak first of all to my brothers and sisters in Christ. You're here, you know Christ, you're born again, you've made that decision. It's sad, but it's possible for even born again, genuine Christians to live worldly lives. It's possible for even born again Christians to live under the influence of the dark kingdom. It's possible for Christians. To live under complete domination by their sinful nature. And maybe that's how you've been living. That's not how you should be living. God has saved you and wants to transform you. And remember you're to be one of his poems. You're to be a great witness for him. People should see your life and be drawn to him. And I would encourage you, if you need to return to him, do that right now. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, but maybe this morning... Right now is the day of salvation, this moment where you would have that personal moment with God, where you would come clean, where you would admit that you are sinful and need to be forgiven. And that you would personally place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he will miraculously change you. Is that you? Will you do that this morning? Will you have your whole life changed? God loves you with a great love. And he's rich in mercy. And his grace. Respond to that. If that's you, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Right now prayer of salvation. This is you asking God to save you. Just in the quietness of your heart, you would say, Lord Jesus, I surrender my life. I am desperate for you. I need you. I am a sinner. I need to be forgiven. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. And rising again. Make me right now born again. Give me a new nature. Give me a brand new start. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to live for you. men. Would you stand with me?